Welcome. Thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. We decided it was, what, four years ago? So we decided four years ago that I was here. Uh, so I appreciate the opportunity to come back. Uh, so you've had a nice recuperation from the last time I was here, so that's good. And I hope that I'll be able to um, impart some information for you that will be useful to you as you strive to live the Christian life. Uh, first of all, I mean, I, I would say up front, I'm not a medical doctor, uh, and so this is a side thing to me to even study this subject, some, especially since it relates to apologetics. Uh, some of the things that we're uh, finding in medical ethics that are going on, these become apologetics issues that we as Christians need to uh, spend some time thinking about, understanding what's going on so that we can talk to the world around us and, and make sure we're not promoting something that God would not promote. Uh, make sure that we are being good um, um, evangelists when it comes to these sorts of topics. So uh, let's go ahead and, uh, and look at some of these important things that we need to be aware of um, as Christians. Why, why, do we wanna, why, do we, why are we concerned about things like medical ethics? Why do we want to know about these things? Well, we want to make sure that we're doing what's right. Uh, we want to make use of, of modern technology wherever we can, but we, but we don't want to do something that God wouldn't have us to do. And so we need to know what is okay with God and then, be able, uh, then we'll be able to do it from faith, whatever it is. So uh, knowing that God sanctions whatever it is that we're wanting to do. Uh, also, according to 1 Peter 3.15, Christians are to be apologists. We're to be ready to give a defense. Um, you know, 100 years ago, things were, were very different in our country. Uh, we didn't have to deal with some of the questions that we're dealing with now because of where technology is on some of these subjects. Now we've got genetic engineering and, and stem cell research and uh, novel abortion techniques that, that most people aren't even aware that, that they are abortion techniques and, and even cloning and uh, things that were just in, in Star Wars not too long ago are now uh, becoming realities. And so as Christians, we have to be ready to stand for what's right in society and give God a voice through us. So does the Bible have anything to say about these things? Uh, how, well, how in the world could it? I mean, you know, the Bible's not a science or medical textbook, but it's accurate. Since God is its author, we would expect accuracy when it even touches on science or medicine, and we would also expect the Bible to be timeless and relevant at all times, just like its author. Uh, but how in the world would the Bible have anything to say about modern medical practices? Well, for one, we know that God tells us in his word that he has, in fact, given us what we need to live a godly life, Second Peter 1.3. So as with all other areas of life, God has told us what we need to know to be able to live in a modern era. So how can we determine what that is, though, uh, what it is that we need to know? Well, the answer comes down to this principle of authority. How does the Bible authorize? Well, it can authorize explicitly, uh, you know, Noah, go build a boat. Uh, Christians, go preach the gospel. gospel. The Bible can authorize implicitly. So Noah needed to use axes, hammers, and pegs, and so forth in order to accomplish God's explicit commands. Uh, Christians, you need to go preach the gospel. Okay, how are you supposed to do that? Well, walk, run, jump, ride, sail, fly, uh, right? These are implicit uh, authorizations that are implied in the command to go teach others. 
So when an explicit command is not given in Scripture, enough information will typically be given to infer what God expects of us or uh, doesn't expect of us in, in different situations. And if there isn't enough information, we refrain from doing it, since it can't be done confidently knowing that God approves of it. In other words, it's not from faith, Romans 14 23. So again, as with all other areas of life, God has told us what we need to know in order to be able to live in a modern era. So let's talk about uh, genetic engineering for, for a few moments. This is a very relevant but oftentimes less understood area of medical ethics today. Uh, this area of research involves any form of artificial reproduction or genetic manipulation. Uh, the primary goal of this field is clearly to alleviate human suffering. Uh, which is certainly not a bad thing inherently. Uh, so the goal of this area is not to be insensitive to life or to religion or to be malicious. Now that said, when it's all said and done, we find that in some cases genetic engineering can be just that. Uh, but alleviating human suffering, of course, is not inherently wrong. Uh, is helping humans okay? Uh, is it okay to go to a doctor? Sure. Uh, Jesus is described as the great physician, Matthew 9.12. Numerous medical treatments are prescribed in the Old Testament. Uh, miraculous healings occur throughout the Bible, uh, showing that the medical field cannot be inherently wrong. Uh, but that does not mean that every form of healing today would be acceptable uh, to God. So some argue that, hey, if it alleviates suffering, then almost anything goes. Uh, euthanasia, uh, suicide or assisted suicide, abortion, narcotics. Uh, some would argue uh, that, hey, you know, it's my body. I can do with it whatever I want, uh, which, of course, contradicts 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's not the, the right approach to this. Another issue, some scientists and physicians work with the underlying assumption that we need to fix nature and that we are capable of doing that. And so the assumption is that either God messed up or that evolution, if they don't accept God, evolution hasn't yet optimized nature. And so we need to step in and help in some cases. I remember when I was doing my uh, uh, master's work in, in Texas, and I remember attending a lecture where an engineer was discussing artificial hearts uh, that were being designed. And the question was asked, has evolution optimized the heart? Or do we need to be helping that along? And so, you know, that's a dangerous mindset. It is certainly true that genetic entropy has been hitting humanity hard for thousands of years now. And therefore, the, the machines that God designed are not necessarily operating as well as they were at the beginning. And therefore, we have to try to counter entropy in some areas, and we do that. But to assume that they never have been optimal and that we might need to improve on them in some fundamental way is only courting catastrophe. And so obviously the perspective that we can and should improve on nature implies that we're supreme and have, enough, have the authority and the, the wisdom and knowledge enough to be able to do that. And so it implies that we're we're not responsible to God, or, nor are we accountable to him for our decisions. Instead, either economic value or whatever we deem to be good for the most people becomes the supreme rule. 
And so the end justifies the means in order to attain whatever is deemed to be good for society. And this is a basic rule going on, of course, in our naturalist thinking society around us, which is especially in the sciences, this is the dominant thinking, naturalism and and that perspective. And therein lies a major problem. God must have a voice in everything and whatever we do in word or deed. Well, there's three different types of genetic uh, research going on today. You can pretty much summarize it in this way. Modification, so this is changes in existing structure by splicing in new genetic material or altering whatever's there, so trying to improve an organism or uh, preventing or curing disease. Uh, nothing necessarily inherently wrong with many forms of this kind of genetic engineering. Uh, for example, injecting healthy copies of bad genes into bone marrow cells uh, to cure genetic disorders uh, by helping the production of, of missing enzymes. Another area, the creation of new life forms, so novel living beings, engineering the engineer instead of the engine. Uh, so, uh, for example, the, uh, the Scripps Research Institute in, in uh, La Jolla, uh, California, they synthesized uh, two new nucleotides to add to the typical four that already exist in our DNA. And so we have A, G, C, and T in our DNA, and now they've added X and Y and added this new DNA to a cell, which then accepted the new DNA. All right, now, as you can imagine, there could certainly be some danger in that because uh, humans are, are now becoming godlike by tampering with life at a very fundamental level, even though we really only have a foundation of knowledge based on only a few years of study of DNA. Uh, but again, this isn't necessarily inherently wrong in every case. Uh, it's an area for caution to be sure. But, but that said, doing this with sentient beings like humans would, number one, cause an untold number of deaths while the research is ensuing, and number two, would cause potentially the dehumanization of the created human. Uh, So it reminds me of of how the clones were treated as as subhuman in Star Wars. Uh, So the third area of genetic engineering involves uh, procreation. So allowing reproduction in, uh, in humans or in animals where it once was not possible, or prolonging or shortening one's life based on the wishes of relatives or friends, uh, which will be more the emphasis of the remainder of our session here uh, this evening. So the main question that I want to discuss regarding medical ethics is what is and, and isn't acceptable to God regarding modern reproductive techniques that have been developed by scientists. And so we'll look at I think four areas, reproductive techniques before uh, used before conception, used at conception, in the prenatal period, and if we have time, at the, in the postnatal period, so after birth. Um, probably only be able to cover those first three, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, so genetic engineering techniques that are relevant before conception would include genetic counseling. And so this involves using our understanding of genetics to try to anticipate the dangers of two particular people having children. And so this can help in family planning, uh, preparing for the future health of of a mother and her children. And so, for example, you could determine the risk for genetic defects by looking at several factors, from family history uh, to the history of miscarriages, 
work environments and how that can affect your, your genes, uh, marriages with close blood relatives and so forth. So, so it's good for people in certain situations to be able to anticipate what may be coming. Now, obviously, as Christians, we want to be unselfish and we want to think about the welfare of others, especially our future children and our posterity. And so clearly, we want to consider the wisdom of this option in certain circumstances. Uh, so, for example, we, we now know that if a parent has uh, a severe mental illness in some cases, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or, or a major depressive disorder, we know there's a 32% probability that the child will also develop a severe mental illness by adulthood. Now, that could be something a, a parent wants to, would want to know uh, before deciding to try for kids. Uh, so we might need to decide if we're equipped for that kind of challenge. Uh, we might need to have time to prepare for it. Uh, and again, we might want to consider the ramifications of our decisions as they will affect our children. Uh, mothers with HIV who aren't uh, being treated for that have a 25% chance of passing that on to their children. And so in such situations, a person would likely want to avoid having children, though, of course, uh, never aborting a child. Uh, genetic screening can also be used before conception to detect certain diseases. Uh, but beware here, uh, some genetic counselors, uh, some doctors and nurses and, and others uh, will pressure parents sometimes to terminate a pregnancy whenever genetic screening has been done after conception if problems are found um, with the child. And so they'll pressure it in, in, in times to terminate that pregnancy, which would be uh, un, unacceptable, scripturally speaking. So, but that said, it can be a good thing to know and prepare for what may be coming if a couple chooses to have children. Uh, statistically, if both parents have certain common diseases or syndromes, the risk of the child inheriting that are 25%. And that's definitely an information a parent would like to have when making family decisions. So bottom line, uh, when it would be genetically irresponsible to have kids or to have more kids, then limiting the size of your family is biblically authorized. Uh, Luke 14:28. for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Uh, Proverbs 22.3, the prudent man, the careful, the cautious man, he foresees, he anticipates evil, danger around the corner and hides himself with the simple pass on and are, and are punished. Which brings us back to the usefulness of genetic counseling and screening. And so notice, although the Bible doesn't explicitly state anything about genetic counseling, there are clearly principles that implicitly authorize using it. And sometimes it's good to know what you're getting into, and it can be unselfish to, towards your future children to think through some things uh, at, at the onset. Obviously, again, abortion is never an option here. Okay, so that was before conception techniques. Uh, and then we have reproductive techniques that are used at conception, and we should discuss... Uh, I think cloning. This is a reproduction where an exact duplicate of the original is made. And so we have natural clones. Uh, bacteria, for example, are natural clones. They reproduce by copying their DNA and then splitting in two. But in this day and age, we have artificial cloning as well through what is called nuclear transfer. And so this is where you can use an unfertilized egg from a female, uh, remove or destroy the nucleus, and then implant uh, the nucleus from a body cell of a female into the egg. And they then reimplant the egg into the uterus and it proceeds to behave like a fertilized egg. 
but notice all of the genetic info is from a single individual rather than two parents. So you've now cloned the single parent. And so this has been used with all kinds of things from carrots and tomatoes to fruit flies and frogs and have been artificially cloned, uh, that have all been artificially cloned using embryonic cells where the nucleus of a, a fertilized egg is inserted into an unfertilized egg. In 1995, sheep became the, became the first mammals to be cloned using nuclear transfer. So they used embryonic cells, not adult cells. And so the cells are what's called undifferentiated. And what that means is that they, they haven't already grown into cells that will have specific functions in the body. Uh, skin cells or brain cells, eye cells, and so forth. So it's, it's the difference between the clone being more like a child version of the adult rather than being a carbon copy of the adult. Uh, then in 1996, Scottish scientist Ian Wilmot cloned Dolly the sheep. You might remember Dolly uh, from using adult cells. So an actual carbon copy of the adult. Uh, then in 1998, the cloned sheep was found to be able to reproduce. It wasn't sterile. Uh, another sheep was born in 1999, but it had some serious health issues and then died young. So one success out of 277 tries. Uh, now uh, we've got mice, cattle, goats, pig, uh, pigs, ca cats, rabbits, mules, horses, and deer have been cloned from adult cells, but they tend to die quicker than their natural counterparts. Okay, so why is there an interest in cloning? Well, with cloning, we, uh, we, we could take the cows, for example, that tend to produce more or better milk because of their genetic disposition and clone them, which would guarantee a stream of better milk or meat for, or, you know, and so forth. Also, there's an interest in cloning animals with better body parts that could be used to help replace diseased human counterparts in some instances. Uh, one or more uh, recent discussions involves using, uh, using cloning to reverse extinction. Even According to researchers, by applying techniques such as cloning and genetic engineering, some believe that we can and should return lost species, such as the passenger pigeon, uh, to the landscape. Now, there could be some danger here, uh, because God created the earth where extinctions happen, and that can be a good thing. And if you reverse extinction, they, that may cause some problems in the current ecosystem, which is drastically different, keep in mind, from the pre-flood ecosystem. Uh, so, plus, if an animal's extinction is due to its, its ceasing to be fit for an environment, then making more of that animal will ultimately just cause more of their deaths in the long run. Uh, so they'll likely move right back toward extinction. Now, the big question, what about cloning humans? Should that be done, and what would be the motivation for that? Uh, some might choose to not face their, their grief over the loss of a child and instead attempt to replace the child with a clone. Uh, some would like to have a cloned version of themselves or their children or loved ones so that they would have compatible organ transplantation when needed. That creepy? Uh, of course, in our materialistic society, everybody wants to be forever young. Uh, cloning ourselves could potentially give us physical uh, immortality. So if we had clones that we could harvest body parts from to replace old, diseased, and injured body parts. Uh, some scientists just want prestige and attention for being the ones that actually pulled this off, uh, because you'd definitely be famous. 
So many would want to be able to have a clone, but the more important question is, why would we not want to clone humans? Uh, first of all, based on Scripture, a baby is, is human at conception. Uh, so, you know, this is, a, I'm sure you guys have taught on abortion here a lot, I'm sure. But, you know, Luke chapter 1, Exodus 21, we've got lots of passages that, that cast uh, insight on that subject. There's no reason to think that a clone wouldn't be just as much a sentient human being with a soul as are we. And therefore, a clone has the same rights as any human being would have in the sight of God. Now, if, hum, if a human clone, um, if human clone results mimic those of the mammals that have been cloned, then we'd expect higher than normal rates of fetal disorders, death in pregnancy, malformation, like uh, for example, large offspring syndrome, uh, death among the newborns. It's estimated that 95% or more of cloning attempts fail. Uh, half of the remaining ones die soon after birth. And so imagine the same figures or more with human babies. Uh, but also there's potential serious threat to the mothers of the clones. And so there'd be a, a serious threat to the cloned human without any obvious benefit to the human being that's actually bearing the threat in this case, the clone. But of course, you also have the fact that the research itself to even attempt human cloning, to try to get it up to the minuscule success rates that we're seeing with humans, or with animals, I mean, would require untold baby deaths just in the testing and research phase. Again, keeping in mind that God considers a baby human uh, at conception. A baby is human at conception. Uh, British physicist Sir John Polkinghorne said this, there's still unresolved questions about how long such a clone will live and how healthy it'll prove to be. If animal experiments of this kind go seriously wrong, it's always possible to halt them by the humane slaughter of the beast concerned. An attempt to use a similar procedure to produce a cloned human person would undoubtedly also require a large number of trials before success was achieved and would involve similar uncertainties about long-term consequences. Putting it bluntly, it would inevitably require the production of experimental human beings. This in itself is morally unacceptable. These procedures might have as their intended end a desirable purpose, such as the birth of a healthy baby who might otherwise suffer from a severe mitochondrial disorder. But the manner in which this has become feasible through a sequence of experiments of this kind would have been ethically tainted. Uh, Dr. David Stevens, who uh, was the executive director of the Christian Medical Association, he said, the basic moral question is, should we allow scientists to destroy dozens of individuals to give parents the child that they want? Uh, British science writer Mark Ridley commenting on the importance of sexual reproduction in response to cloning. He said, we need sex. We may need it to clear out our harmful mutations. A sub-branch of human beings who went in for cloning reproduction would also be signing their progeny up for a mutational meltdown. They would undergo rapid genetic decay as mutations accumulated faster than they could be eliminated. The basic problem lies in messing with a design feature of our bodies when we do not understand the design principles. Uh, which I think is well said. Uh, other ethical issues, cloning could be used to provide children for unmarried people, which would circumvent God's plan for the home. Uh, parents could pre-select the gender of their children and numerous other attributes, not just gender. 
the women's liberation would be complete since no male would be needed to produce a child. So lesbians would be elated. Uh, large batches of human clones could be made for statistical studies. Uh, clones could be produced in order to harvest their spare parts. For example, bone marrow and hearts and so forth for transplants. So imagine being a clone and knowing that you're alive only as a scrap for others. Uh, clone armies could be created and would likely be treated as subhuman, uh, like animals or slaves or robots. So imagine people who were enamored of their own importance making exact genetic replicas of themselves uh, by tens, of hun- tens or hundreds if they so desired. Uh, so no wonder, according to the 2003 Inter-Academy Inter- panel on, on uh, in- international issues, Uh, their statement to the UN Committee on Cloning. They said, even on a purely scientific basis, therefore, it would be quite irresponsible for anyone to attempt human reproductive cloning given our current level of scientific knowledge. We therefore call on all countries worldwide to ban reproductive cloning of human beings. So note here that they only advocated banning reproductive cloning, not cloning for therapeutic or research purposes. And so a ban, uh, so ban cloning that is used to initiate a pregnancy, not a ban on embryonic stem cell research, which we'll talk, talk about in a few moments. Uh, several years ago, the U.S. outlawed federal funding for research on human embryonic stem cells. That didn't put a ban on private research. Uh, the U.S. FDA stepped forward and, and took authoritative role in prohibiting cloning, seeing that as an experimental medical procedure. In August 2001, the National Academy of Sciences had a conference on cloning in D.C. And in the summary article by Michael Lemonek in uh, Time magazine, he said, Most of the scientists who gathered in Washington earlier this month to talk about human cloning agreed that cloning an entire human being, besides being morally questionable, was fraught with technical obstacles. After all, research into animal cloning has already shown that for every apparent success like Dolly the sheep, there are hundreds of failures, including many badly deformed creatures that were usually miscarried. And so this highlights the fact that cloning is is really the epitome of selfishness. Uh, So those who push for human cloning aren't thinking about the good of others, uh, in this case the poor, deformed, dying babies that are produced by failed clonings. But rest assured, it's just a matter of time uh, before they're openly attempting to do this with gusto. Uh, Other questions to consider, would clones really be an exact duplicate? Uh, If you cloned you, would it be you? Uh, Well, it would only be you genetically, so it'd be like like identical twins. Uh, So humans uh, having souls are the product of our environment and our experiences uh, just as much or more than we are our genes. Uh, Would the clone be human? Would a cloned human have a soul, for example? Uh, James 2.26, speaking of human, says that the body apart from the spirit is dead. And so if the human body is alive, then by implication, it has a spirit. And so if scientists are able to clone living humans, they would, by implication, have a soul. Uh, But only God can instill a soul, Acts 17.25. And so the real question is, would God choose to instill a soul into a clone, therefore giving it life? Uh, Who knows? I'm, I'm sure we'll find out. Uh, Other techniques used at conception, uh, artificial insemination or or intrauterine insemination. This is a a conception option where sperm are collected and then the best sperm are filtered and implanted by catheter into the uterus of a woman and then released. 
so why is uh, artificial insemination being done? Uh, this technique is usually chosen because of male infertility or subfertility. Uh, fertility problems are known to come, to come down to male issues in 10 to 15 percent of cases. And so inadequate sperm count or faulty sperm impotency and so forth. And there's different types of artificial insemination. You have uh, AIH, so artificial insemination with the husband's sperm. AID is with donor sperm. AIDH is with both. All right, so if artificial insemination with only the husband is used, I don't see a biblical problem with that. It's just correction of, physiolog of a physiological problem that's likely brought about by genetic entropy over the thousands of years since creation. But there are ethical issues with donor artificial insemination and donor husband artificial insemination. So, for example, uh, women could bear children for single men who want to be fathers or unmarried couples, which again circumvents God's plan for the home. Women could bear children for other married couples, so surrogate motherhood. Uh, women could bear children for homosexual men. Uh, women who are lesbians could have children without a male partner. In fact, thousands of children are right now being raised by lesbians who conceive those children through artificial insemination. Uh, the gender of the child could be pre-selected as well, uh, since methods are now available to concentrate the Y-chromosome-bearing sperm, which is necessary for the production of male children. Also, possibilities exist for those donating the sperm to pass on unwanted genetic traits. Uh, there are emotional aspects involved as well. The wife, for example, might feel an attachment to the donor if donor sperm are used. Uh, legal and or moral problems um, often result as well. So, for example, uh, who is the legitimate father if donor sperm are used? Uh, is the child uh, legitimate? And also, regardless of how we view the scenario, the artificially inseminated child is a genetic product of a man and the mother, though she's not married to the man. She's still a mother, and he's still a father, and therefore both responsible for the child before God. Uh, Well-known Christian evangelical author Nancy uh, Piercy summarized another thing for Christians to consider with AI. By using both abortion and artificial reproduction, we're building a technology of reproduction around the parent's wishes. To put it bluntly, if you don't want the child growing within you, you can destroy it through abortion. And if you do want a child, you can get one to order through a trip to the laboratory. There's an erosion of respect for existing life as a, as a gift of God wherever we put it, uh, wherever we find it. We can now hire life and death at the parent's uh, wishes. So bottom line, it seems to me that AID and AIDH would be very dangerous choices, I think, for Christians. Another technique in virtual fertilization. This is where several eggs from a woman are generated through stimulating the ovaries and then they're sucked from the ovaries, placed into a petri dish with sperm for a few days. And then selected embryos from the dish are implanted by catheter into the woman's uterus. Uh, so these are the test tube babies you hear about. And so this technique is used for those with blocked fallopian tubes, uh, advanced reproductive age, uh, low sperm count, or unexplained infertility. According to WebMD, there have been over 200,000, there were over 200,000 in vitro fertilization babies in the United States between 1981 and 2012, so over 32 years there. 
Well, there are ethical issues involved in in vitro fertilization. First of all, in vitro fertilization uh, results in the death of fertilized eggs before they're implanted. And so some of the eggs that were fertilized in that Petri dish, uh, some of those fertilized eggs, of course, die unintentionally, but some die purposely if they're deemed not fit enough to be used for implantation into the mother. And then uh, further, after implantation, 60% miscarry. And so we have to keep in mind that these are humans in God's sight, and every soul is precious to God. It's not just an embryo to God. Uh, In the IVF procedure, uh, three eggs on average pass the test are implanted into the mother, and then transabdominal selective reproduction uh, reduction is used to wipe out the zygotes that have been implanted that are deemed inferior. And so it's basically a lot of premeditated murder being carried out on these babies that are considered to be less fit. Uh, five to 12 are fertilized on average in IVF and only three in implant, are implanted on average. And so two to nine embryos are either tossed out or frozen, uh, most of which will eventually be discarded. Uh, So incidentally, researchers want to be able to use the hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos for stem cell experiments. Uh, Now, Bush prohibited the federal funding for research on human embryos back in 2001, uh, which President Obama then overturned through an executive order in 2009, which removed the restrictions on embryonic stem cell research. Uh, Now, uh, something for Christians to consider is what are called snowflake babies. This is also called embryo adoption. And these are the uh, discarded fertilized eggs from IVF embryos that you can adopt. Uh, Hundreds of babies have been born through this adoptive process, and those embryos are saved from death. Uh, Another issue to consider in the case of of those donating eggs for any of these procedures It is still partially your baby. It is your genetic offspring, and therefore your responsibility before God when you donate them, just as is the case with sperm banks. And if those issues aren't enough, you have to consider the foundational principles of medical ethics. A very fundamental ethical principle in medicine is that if a procedure is to be done, it must be done for the benefit of the patient. So consider IVF and, and uh, and and the human embryos. Is this a procedure you'd appreciate if you're one of those embryos? Uh, Another foundational principle is informed consent of the patient. Uh, Has the embryo given their informed consent? Does it get a choice in its own life or death? All right, now minors usually have to assent and the parents consent to a procedure. Uh, When that's not possible, parents are supposed to act in the best interest of the child, okay, but is killing in the best interest of the child. Uh, So ironically, parents can't order the termination of a treatment that's required to keep a child alive, even if they think it's in the the child's best interest, and yet the unborn, of course, are butchered like they're gnats. Uh, What about IVF surrogacy? This is having a baby for someone else using IVF. Now, in the distant past, of course, surrogacy was typical among slaves and servants, And then came artificial implantation of sperm into a woman. Uh, In the 1980s, a surrogate mother's egg was fertilized with a a husband's sperm. And so there was a genetic link to the husband in the child, but not the wife. It was the surrogate's genes instead. And now, of course, you have IVF where you've got a wife's egg coupled with a husband's sperm, but they're then planted in a donor womb 
a surrogate mother with a fee paid to her to surrogate. Uh, so are there ethical issues to consider with IVF surrogacy? Well, definitely. Uh, we even find some of the issues in Scripture, the emotional baggage caused uh, for the surrogate, Genesis chapter 16 with, with Hagar and Sarah. There's potential danger to the child since you can't know what the surrogate who's keep carrying your baby is going to do while you're pregnant, while, while they're pregnant. And then there are other fertilized eggs. Remember that about half of the 10 to 12 eggs that are taken for IVF die. Uh, that is, they're aborted. So is the death of five children worth the craving to have one? And then we have to consider 1 Timothy 5.14, the biblical plan for reproduction. Uh, women are to marry, bear children, and then guide or manage the house. So notice the surrogacy bypasses the marriage part. A single mother could simply walk into a sperm bank and get some sperm to fertilize one of her eggs. So is that God's plan for the home? Uh, should another man's sperm be placed in a woman's body impregnating her when she's not his wife? I mean, that's the question. So consider a real-world case. Uh, a barren couple wanted a child. They took unknown donor sperm, an unknown donor egg, hired a surrogate, and had the fertilized egg placed in her. Then a divorce ensued between the hiring couple during the surrogate pregnancy. All right, so question, whose child is that now? Does the baby belong to the surrogate who never intended to rear the child? If so, then this admits that she's a mother since she, car since she carried and birthed the baby, even though she only intended to carry the child, and though she's not even genetically related to the child. Uh, is the baby the child of the original genetic donor parents, those who originally donated the sperm and the egg uh, that were in storage and then selected by the divorced couple? If so, then that highlights the danger of donating sperms and eggs. You're still going to be liable as parents. Uh, does the baby belong to the man and woman who hired the surrogacy but never officially had a child yet and have, therefore have no genetic culpability towards this child? So notice the mess here. And so this highlights why God has a specific plan for the home. Uh, the child would now have to suffer due to the desires of her parents, you know, whoever they were. Well, the court had to first rule that the child had no lawful parents. And ultimately, the girl had no parents for three years until the courts gave a ruling. And so again, is this really God's plan for the home? <laughs> of course not. Another case, uh, May 1995, uh, University of California in Irvine, doctors Ash and Balma Keda were accused of stealing eggs and embryos and switching them between patients and then selling them to infertile couples for surrogacy. So now, you know, whose children are whose now? Uh, whose child are you responsible for before God? And should the children be given back to you when the genetic truth is discovered, even if it's been years? And so notice that the surrogacy seems to seems like a seems like it'd be a major act of love, but notice the ethical dilemmas here. Uh, wouldn't simply sticking with God's basic design plan for the home eliminate much of this chaos and the ethical dilemmas that we find when we step outside of God's plan? Uh, incidentally, as a corollary to our look at uh, at IVF, I wanted to mention. Uh, a revolutionary process that is sweeping the biological community called CRISPR. And this is a, 
a process that allows scientists to edit DNA, which could help to eliminate various genetic diseases from our genome uh, by fixing dangerous mutations and even enhance the genome in some cases. Uh, the process is well studied in human adult cells and animal embryos, and it's even being used to grow better crops. Uh, most human gene editing has been limited to somatic cells, so cells that aren't egg or sperm cells, and so the changes being made wouldn't be inherited, and they only affect certain tissues, so not necessarily an ethical problem here. Uh, but there are ethical issues that must be considered when the process is applied, not to animals, but to human germline cells or in human embryos, because... Uh, number one, the changes could be passed on, and the long-term effects of that aren't known. Number two, the process could allow enhancement of certain physical characteristics, like height or intelligence, uh, essentially uh, allowing for designer babies. Uh, number three, the process is used in conjunction with in vitro fertilization, which again is a problem. And number four, when CRISPR is used to modify human embryos, it involves experimenting on fertilized eggs. So again, human babies. Uh, to justify the process, they fertilize the eggs in such a way where they know the babies wouldn't be able to survive to full term, uh, which doesn't fix the problem from a biblical perspective. Uh, babies are being artificially made solely for experimentation, knowing that they are doomed to die from the moment they are conceived. Uh, obviously, these are, there are serious objections to that from a biblical perspective that should cause Christian scientists to pause and make sure they don't use this new technique in a sinful way. All right, so summarizing IVF, there are not necessarily biblical issues with uh, Christian couples getting help with physiological issues preventing uh, pregnancy. There is, however, a significant problem with the, the butchering of innocent embryos along the way as doctors attempt to find the fittest and most likely to survive in in vitro fertilization procedures. Uh, it would be one thing if IVF would only produce eggs that would all be used, but that's not the procedure today, and to get to that point would ultimately require more and more deaths as they try to perfect this procedure. Uh, and you also have to consider uh, the, the principle of stewardship, and that is it is extremely costly to have IVF. All right, let's see here. We're... Uh, running out of time, aren't we? All right, I am not going to talk about abortion because I'm confident you've probably covered that quite a bit here, so I think we're going to skip abortion. The Bible is extremely clear on that. Uh, also, in the prenatal period, we have amniocentesis. This is where amniotic fluid is collected and tested for over uh, 70 different disorders. Uh, and so they can determine gender using amniocentesis as well. You also have uh, sonograms during this period, uh, which can be used to determine the health of the child and screen for disorders. Um, and uh, if issues are discovered, a parent can wait it out and prepare or, or go with in utero prenatal surgery or blood tran transfusions to try to fix the problem, which is uh, unusual to do. Um, let's see, I'm just, there's some sporadic things I could talk to you about. Let's see if there's anything else that's just essential. Since it's already 49 after, is that right? Oh man, there's, I got to talk about one thing here. Hmm. 
Okay, let's see here. This is what I wanted to do. Okay, so in, uh, in embryonic stem cell research, uh, you got somatic cell nuclear transfers used, like what was used in, in cloning Dolly. Uh, so you remove the DNA from an egg, you transfer the nucleus of a skin cell into an egg. Uh, the egg recognizes that it's been fertilized and then begins growing like a normal embryo. The embryo is subsequently destroyed uh, for harvesting its cells. Uh, Elizabeth Landau, science reporter for CNN, explains, the first developments in the field of stem cell research use leftover embryos created by the union of sperm and egg from in vitro fetalization. But embryonic stem cell research is controversial because to use the stem cells for developing medical treatments, the embryo is destroyed. Embryos have the potential to develop into fully formed human. Of course, we know that they are fully formed human, bringing up ethical questions. Scientists later realized, and there's the key, that it's not necessary to use embryos to obtain stem cells that match patients. Shinya Yamanaka won the 2012 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for discovering how to make induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS cells. So uh, 11 years uh, after Hollowell's comments about other options besides ESC, uh, in, in October 2012, Sir John Gurdon and Shinya uh, Yamanaka received the Nobel Prize for discovering how to reprogram cells after they'd already been specialized. So these are adult stem cells, not embryonic. And so they could reprogram any kind of cell by inserting genes into mature cells that already had specific functions, therefore eliminating the need for cloning embryos. Uh, Dieter Egley, senior research fellow of the New York Stem Cell Foundation, explained the cloning method takes a few weeks and is not significantly faster than generating iPS cells. So in fact, uh, Egley noted that embryonic stem cell research advantages would, would uh, have to be considerable to beat out this new method, which is much more efficient and less ethically contentious that Yamanaka taught us. Uh, Gretchen Vogel, writing in Science Magazine in 2014, she highlighted that in the U.S., no federal funding can be used for research that harms or destroys a human embryo. So, so you've got to keep it in the private sector, no National Institute of Health uh, grant money. She noted that several states have banned uh, SCNT research, and so the political energy needed to overturn those laws might be hard to generate given that there's now an embryo-free alternative to producing patient-specific stem cells. In other words, why kill embryos when you can now get the cells that you need without, without all of the arguing and debate and without killing the embryos? Now, this is exciting news from a Christian perspective uh, because it will drastically de uh, decrease this area of abortion that we're finding uh, that is oftentimes not even considered whenever we're estimating how many abortions are occurring in the U.S. Uh, when you try to work in embryonic stem cell research, that, those numbers climb um, you know, extravagantly. Anyway, so I won't have time to get into some of the things I, I would like to talk about medical ethics that are being used after birth, uh, for example. Uh, but there are uh, lots of things we've been able to at least touch on tonight. And, uh, and as we're finding in most of these cases, the question comes down to, at what point does God consider you a human being? 
And once you know the answer to that question and, and you understand what is happening in each of these new procedures, then you know what God would have you to do. I mean, that's really summarizing what this is. If you understand exactly what's going on in the procedures and you understand that a, a, when the sperm and when conception occurs and you've got the sperm and the egg meeting, that's a human being. So anything you do to terminate that is murder. <laughs> and so you've got to know which, which procedures cause that to occur and be careful to not support that from a Christian's perspective. Amazingly, uh, no matter how far removed we are from the times uh, when the Bible was written down, and no matter how advanced our society gets, the Bible continues to speak to us on things like this, proving it to be an advanced book that transcends time, just like the author that wrote it. Okay, so we're going to take a few minutes here, and, and um, I've got materials back there. The material on the, to the left of the red sash is, is free stuff. The material to the right is not free. There's a box out there. You can put money for those. And what I did, I, I assumed you guys know a lot about our work. So I brought a lot of the materials that we put out just in the last, oh, three or four years for the most part since the last time I was here. And if you've got any questions about that, please be sure to ask me. I also have my little uh, PayPal swiper thing if you need to use a card to purchase any of those. Just keep in mind that we're, we're producing those materials for you so that you have what you need and that your children have what they need to be equipped uh, to, to uh, defend the gospel in this uh, highly technical scientific age in which we live. All right, thank you for attention. Let's take a few, few minutes.
Okay, can you hear me? Yep, looks like I'm turned on. All right. Okay. So we're going to change gears and move far away from what we were just talking about into an area 